It's Monday, January 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This week, we hit the one-year mark for Joe Biden's presidency, and it has been one marked with many roadblocks and only incremental agenda achievements. The two main promises of his campaign have eluded him, ending the pandemic and bringing the country together. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for Biden one year in, the Supreme Court halting vaccine mandates for larger employers, at-home COVID tests going out this week, and the Texas synagogue hostage situation. Next, a grieving family trying to make connections after the death of their son found that his biological father had psychiatric problems. They wish his hospitalization and condition were disclosed on the questionnaire the father filled out when he donated sperm. Turns out that donor 1558 had schizophrenia, and later the Gunner family also had to deal with their son Stephen when he was also diagnosed with the same disorder and died of an opioid overdose. The Gunners are now using their story to push for legislation to get better disclosures from sperm donors. Amy Doxer Marcus, health and science reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I ran for president to unite the country. This bipartisan infrastructure law I signed two months ago unites us around uh, things we all depend on. Whether you're in rural Kentucky or downtown Philadelphia, you should be able to turn on a faucet and drink clean water. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about President Biden one year in. This week, we'll hit that one-year mark of the Biden presidency uh, on the 20th, obviously. Unfortunately, the two main goals that President Biden set out to achieve, ending the pandemic and and bringing the country closer, uh, unity in the country, those two biggest things have not uh, really been hit. You know, the pandemic continues to rage on, and, and we seem to be more polarized than ever. I mean, that that part of it hasn't gone away. So a lot of big goals that the president set out, very tough, a lot of roadblocks that he hit along the way. That's right. I mean, it has not been an easy first year for President Biden. Um, He did come in talking about really working to keep the pandemic at bay. And since then, we've seen two big spikes. We saw the Delta spike in the fall, and now we're all living this Omicron spike here in the winter. And I think that there's a lot of feelings that people gave him time. They gave him time to get to get prepared, to get ready, and he wasn't prepared. Particularly on the testing front, people were really struggling these last few weeks to find testing, whether it was appointments for PCR testing or kits to do home testing. And we're seeing that in polls. People feel like his response is not up to the level that they were expecting or that he promised. And there's starting to be a lot of unhappiness with it. We did see you know, some big goals met. The infrastructure bill got passed, the Build Back Better plan, some big flops, most notably like in Afghanistan, Voting rights legislation is uh, something he's trying to push through right now. But even that, you know, a lot of opposition from within his own party. Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema said they're not going to vote to change filibuster rules. So, again, just kind of continuing to hit roadblocks along the way for his agenda. Yeah, that's right. He did get his infrastructure bill passed, which is a big piece of his agenda and something he talked about and got done on a bipartisan fashion. But I think you're right. There's lots of things he talked about on the campaign trail or tried to push for while he's been in office that he's not been able to achieve. And it's really likely, very unlikely, we should say, that this voting bill will never get passed, uh, at least as the Senate looks right now. Unless they start over and try to actually negotiate with Republicans, it's not going to happen. And I think the other big stumbling block that he's run into is the economy. We've really seen 
seen inflation grow over the last year. We've seen a labor shortage that has affected sort of everyday people's experience when they go to the store. I think a lot of people this last few weeks have started to see supply chain problems at grocery stores. And it's really the kind of thing that affects the mental views of the American people. When you can't get what you want at the grocery store, people start to get unhappy. Some of that's totally out of his hands. The inflation's raging around the globe. Supply chain problems are happening everywhere. But people don't really think that way. They think sort of at their own neighborhoods. And when it's a problem at their own neighborhoods, they're going to blame the elected officials that, that represent them. I mean, every year of a presidency is very important, but this next year will be critical heading into the midterm elections. It's going to kind of reshape the rest of the Biden presidency after that. So we'll see, you know, how all that happens. And, uh, you know, continuing on to some coronavirus news, you know, more roadblocks, I guess you could say, for the administration. The Supreme Court just ruled that they're going to put a halt to his vaccine plan for large employers. This was the plan that would mandate employers with 100 or more employees to have their employees vaccinated or test weekly. And and the Supreme Court said no. They said that uh, OSHA overstepped their boundaries. I guess you would need congressional action to make something like this happen. This was one of the ways the Biden administration, after months of trying to sort of use a carrot to get the American public all vaccinated, switched to the stick method, creating this rule that would require employers to have their employees vaccinated, which would then in turn cost people their jobs in some cases if they weren't vaccinated and their employer was unwilling to test them. That did not hold up. A Supreme Court struck that rule down this week. They did uphold a separate rule that had been created by this administration that requires any healthcare professional who treats Medicare patients, uh, which is basically almost all of them because Medicare is so ubiquitous in our healthcare system, that they be vaccinated. And then the court said that that rule could remain. But this is a real blow to their efforts to sort of force people to get vaccinated uh, because this rule has been struck down. The other key tool that's going to be launching this week is this government-run website that we've talked about previously, so people can order at-home testing kits for COVID. Uh, I think uh, each household can order up to four. That's going to be starting on Wednesday, the 19th. These test kits, they've been in high demand. People have not been able to get them. The administration says that ultimately, in addition to the ones that they're buying now, they're going to buy one billion tests over the next year, which is just a huge number to consider. And this first batch are going to be sent out to people. You can log onto a website starting Wednesday, request it. They're going to mail them to you in seven to 10 days. Let's keep in mind, though, that this is a huge logistical undertaking That's to right. collect all of these requests and then fill them. I mean, you talk about Amazon ships, you know, millions of packages, but they've been doing it for a long time and ramped up. So we should just be a little cautious when thinking about this and consider that we may see more stumbling blocks. We, this is a huge logistical undertaking for them to do. Finally, just wanted to touch on this over the weekend on Saturday, you know, we saw this, uh, scene taking place at a Texas synagogue. There's a 44-year-old British national. Uh, they had uh, recently identified him as Malik Faisal Akram. He took four people hostage in the synagogue. He uh, was eventually shot and killed, um, but he was there uh, pleading for some Pakistani neuroscientist who was convicted of trying to kill U.S. Army officers in Afghanistan, uh, pleading for her to be freed. Um, still no indication as why he chose the synagogue, uh, but just, uh, you know, uh, at least all the hostages that were there got out safe and, and are free now. Yeah, it's a very tragic, um, well, could have been tragic. I guess it didn't end as tragically as it could have because they were all released safe 
safely, but a very scary situation outside Dallas on Saturday when this hostage situation unfolded. We don't know why he wanted the specific woman released. We do know that that was sort of the terms that he was trying to seek. Um, But I think that there'll be a lot of examination of how he ended up there, why he ended up there, how, you know, a non-American, a British who national who's generally allowed to they're allowed to come into the country pretty freely although less so recently with covid restrictions how he ended up in the u.s what he was doing here i think there's a lot of unanswered questions but at least the relief of knowing that um, all of his intended victims ended up safely going home that night ginger gibson deputy washington digital editor at nbc news thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me They have worked with their state senator. They're interested in a bill that would try to get around some of this issue by requiring sperm donors, among others, to give access to their medical records if they want to donate. Joining us now is Amy Doxer-Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thank you. I wanted to talk about this interesting story you wrote up about Laura and David Gunner and their son, Stephen Gunner. Their son, unfortunately, died of an opioid overdose after battling from schizophrenia. The story you know, has a lot of different details in it, but Stephen was conceived, uh, his parents got donor sperm to be able to conceive him. And what they didn't know is that his biological father also suffered from schizophrenia. And you know, a lot of times this can run in families. It shows signs of possibly being hereditary, although scientists haven't made completely made all the connections very clear yet, but uh, the family was grieving and, and, you know, they said, you know, maybe if we would have known more about the donor, you know, maybe we wouldn't have gone that way or maybe we would have been able to help him more. So uh, it's a pretty complicated issue, Amy, if you can help us walk through some of this. I think one important thing to point out is that at the time that the donor went to the sperm bank, he had not yet received his diagnosis of schizophrenia. But what he did do is he was required by the sperm bank to fill out a questionnaire where he gave details about his own history with illness and his family's medical history. And one of the questions was, had you ever been hospitalized for any reason? And he answered no. What the gunners found out later was that he had been hospitalized. He had been hospitalized for behavioral issues in a facility, and he hadn't answered that question correctly on the questionnaire. Um, And people don't know why. It's unknown reason why he didn't answer the question correctly. But what the gunners said is that they would have liked the sperm bank to have fact-checked, essentially, the information and independently tried to verify what was provided by the donor. And obviously, that's not what really happens at large. I mean, largely, this stuff is kind of based on the honor system. You fill out your questionnaire, you donate the sperm, and and you're kind of done. They, you know, they get paid for it sometimes, a hundred to one hundred fifty bucks for a donation for the donor. But by and large, they don't go back and check everything. They do screen for other illnesses and, and things like that, HIV and other transmissible diseases. But some of this other mental disorder stuff, they don't really go back and look through it. 
Different sperm banks have different rules because, you know, they're trying to differentiate themselves from each other. They are a consumer business and they're trying to get people to use their services. And certainly some of the checking that gets done now is different than what happened when Stephen was being conceived, you know, over 27 years ago. But overall, while it's possible to check some information because donors are required to do blood tests and and urine tests, things that can be verified, there are aspects of the donor's social and medical history that they take them at their word or they hope that if there's a physician that does a physical exam, that physician will delve into it. But one of the things that the Gunners have done is they have worked with their state senator. They're interested in a bill that would try to get around some of this issue by requiring sperm donors, among others, to give access to their medical records if they want to donate. So that that would require, you know, giving permission to the sperm bank to request their medical records, their visits to their physicians, the drugs that they've been prescribed, so that they could verify independently whatever's provided on the questionnaires. Right. They would have to waive their confidentiality protections at that point, which could be, you know, a sticking point for some. You know, obviously people donate. They want to maintain their anonymity a lot of times. So that would be something that had to be worked out through in the bill. How far along is that? Do we know? It just got introduced. So it's probably not all that far along because yeah. it's, okay. it's just at the very beginning of the process. But, um, you know, the Gunners did share their story with their state senator And he did say that he was moved by it and he worked with them and with other advocates who are interested in addressing some of these issues through legislation. Tell me a little bit more about the Gunner's son, Stephen, and and his trajectory, because by all accounts, you know, he was a a very well-adjusted boy in the beginning. At about age 15, things turned. And then by 19, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yeah, I mean, the Gunners shared with me uh, some of their memories and um, experiences with their son. You know, he was a beloved child and he had a younger sister. He enjoyed music. His parents said that he particularly liked the Beatles. He played sports. He was selected as the captain of the junior high school football team. And by all accounts, he was a social and outgoing, you know, boy. His parents said that they noticed a change in his personality and demeanor around the age of 15. He started to use drugs. He got into trouble at school. He went from being a, you know, an outgoing person with a lot of friends to someone who kept to himself. And it was challenging for them at first to understand whether there was something hugely wrong going on or whether what he was going through was, you know, moodiness and teenage angst. But as the time as time went on, it became apparent that he did have a serious problem because he became addicted to drugs and he he needed a lot of help and intervention, which his parents tried to provide for him. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, that cycle right continues. So he was in and out of rehab and psychiatric hospitals. He was jailed repeatedly. And, you know, unfortunately, things spiraled the wrong way. After he passed, his parents were, you know, grieving, obviously, and wanted to connect with other people if they could. So that's when they made it to the uh, donor sibling registry where they can connect with other donor conceived people, you know, sperm and egg donors, all that. And they found that Stephen had 18 half siblings. So the biological father, I guess he's known as donor 1558. That's how many kids uh, were conceived using his sperm. So 
this is kind of the other half. This is where they felt a duty to start sharing the story and even let them know about the biological father's uh, schizophrenia. Yeah, and I should point out that the number of children that were conceived using this donor sperm, that's the number that the families themselves were able to identify. It's possible that the number may be larger because Donor Sibling Registry, a website, was created by a mother and her donor-conceived son in order to allow different people to connect with one another. And there is a group on that website dedicated to, to a subgroup, you know, of people that have gathered on that website who all use this particular donor, the same one that Stephen's parents had used. And so they share information with one another. And initially, what I think the gunner's impulse was, was that they knew that schizophrenia can run in families, and they wanted to share his health information with his half-siblings or the parents of his half-siblings in order to give them some important medical information that they might not have. But in the course of meeting some of those families, they learned that one of the parents on the site had had her child do a home DNA test. And through that test, her child was able to connect with the child's biological relatives, which included the sperm donor's parents. And that's how they learned more information about the sperm donor's history that they hadn't known from the questionnaires that they were able to read that he had supplied to the sperm bank. So the gunners, you know, obviously, you know, really concerned, really angry about this also. But, you know, so what do we know about the connections of schizophrenia from parents to children? There is an increase in percentage that they that they could come down with it. Although, I, you know, some of the experts you did speak to say, by and large, they don't come down with it. But there is an increased risk, at least. Yes, that's very true. I mean, the estimate, and these are approximate estimates, but the estimate of um, the disorder in the general population is around 1%. And the scientists that I spoke with said, if you have a parent that has the disorder, your risk of developing the disorder is around 10%. So that is a significant increase over what you might have um, if you didn't have um, a parent with the disorder. But as one of the doctors that I interviewed said, if you do have a parent that has schizophrenia, you're more likely not to develop it than you are to develop it. But having said that, there's been an increase in studies in recent years where they're trying to sort of unlock what they call the black box of schizophrenia, and they're trying to understand the genetic component of the disease. They've identified hundreds of gene variants that collectively working together may give you a kind of genetic nudge or shove towards developing the disorder, but they're still trying to work out more how that works and what the interaction might be between your genetic predisposition to this disorder and environmental factors, because they've also identified some environmental risk factors that may also, either individually or in concert with your genetic predisposition, increase your risk of developing schizophrenia. It's still an emerging science. They're yeah. still working to figure this all out. Amy, Dr. Marcus, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.